Welcome to Midnight Book Club. I'm John Hart. And I'm Alexa. Pour yourself a stiff drink, pull up a chair, and get lost in the fantasy for a while. it's a metaphoric werewolf what like so like it's the idea of a werewolf yeah who's the metaphoric werewolf i guess if i had to pick one character it would probably be Geralt. okay because like a werewolf he's misunderstood well he is the white wolf kind of a werewolf it's kind of a werewolf yeah i i don't think that's quite the same but uh, I don't know. I could be wrong in that. There are werewolves in the Witcher universe, meaning mm-hmm. that he wouldn't be a werewolf actually, but metaphorically, he might relate with the experience. I could see that. He strikes me more as a as a one-time werewolf, like he changed into a werewolf and then that was kind of it. You know what I mean? What do you mean a one-time werewolf? Like did he, he change was a one-way into werewolf. it? One- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, like he, he was only a werewolf for like 24 hours and then changed back? No, no. I'm saying like the trial of the grasses like turned him into the into a witcher. Oh, you're saying he never he never has the ability to change back to yeah, his yeah. He's regular a, he, human he's form. He's a, a unidirectional werewolf. Well, if he was a werewolf, he'd be the sworn enemy of Regis because vampires and That's werewolves true. never get along. Everybody does, in fact, know that that vampires and werewolves do not get along. I mean, that's that's Stephanie Myers canonized that that lore. So. Was it just Stephanie Myers, or no. was it like an established trope? Yeah, I think I think it was an established trope even before Stephanie Meyer. It wasn't like really super well known, but it definitely. I feel like Stephanie Meyer wasn't the first one to do it, though. Yeah, like I feel like that's always been a thing, but maybe it's because I saw Twilight. Yeah, so I yeah. No, but I feel like I feel like I've seen that in other places. Now I know that vampires playing baseball is completely a Twilight invention. Yes, because I don't <laughs> think that's anywhere else. I think that's exclusively um, in Twilight. Honestly, like I think vampires having like superpowers is kind of also somewhat of an invention by Twilight as well, um, like super strength and super speed. Like, those aren't really things that show up in a lot of other literature or, like, depictions of uh, vampires from what I know. I feel like a lot of vampires have special abilities, but, like, in Twilight, it's very weird. Like, I've never heard of them having super speed. Like, how they just run up a mountain or something. Yeah, Like, yeah. that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, why Why are they super fat? Like, the turn into a bat thing, that's, that's, that's an old, that's an old lore. Like, that, that's been there for a while. Right. Um, shapeshift into like a, a, a fog of mist. Yeah, that's been a thing for a while. But like, and they supposedly can move pretty fast when they do that. But like running really, really fast isn't really one of them. Like, so. Question. Okay. What is your favorite depiction of vampires Ooh. in literature? Oh, is it just limited to literature? Uh, we can media? expand it to media. Okay. Um, I'm going to be honest. Probably one of my favorite depictions of them is probably in Vampire, the video game. Okay. Yep. Um, despite that, I, I actually myself didn't play it. Um, it was actually just entirely me watching you. Um, but I really thought it was, it was one of the best depictions I've ever seen. Um, what'd you like about it? It was, it was kind of like, it was very like scientifically based, 
but it also had like a good twinge of like like spoopy occultishness to it um that was really really fun um like the whole thing kind of felt a little bit like resident evil um but like with vampires and like the idea was like vampirism was actually like a, a an actual pathogen um that was transmitted yeah. um which was was really kind of cool but then there was also some like genetics thrown in there as well and then like you could develop and you could come across like vampires that had like mutated into like super vampires that like had abilities but they weren't they were more like like um dark souls type abilities kind of thing where they could like sprout like giant like scythe arms kind of thing not necessarily like oh they have abilities like bella has the ability to to shield from things like i don't <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I almost forgot about that, but it's mm-hmm. kind of similar to being a witcher in Vampire. It's like yeah, yeah. there's ways that you can develop, and it's more of like a scientific basis rather than yeah, you're a vampire now, which is what most of the origin story is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was gonna say that like in I don't know that I'm like super hardcore about like. Because obviously you're talking about like a fantasy idea, so like, okay, why are we? You know, it's 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 why does it need to be rooted in science? But I feel like doing that makes it feel more believable and grounded, um, and it makes you suspend disbelief a little bit easier. At least that's kind of my two cents. Also, I saw someone. I'm fading out again. Um, give me a second. I saw uh, a tweet a couple of days ago. It was um, I may have I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but it was. <laughs> Somebody had taken the the blue sepia filter off of uh, the Twilight baseball scene, and it looks really, really weird (laughs) (laughs) because it's just a bunch of like normal colored, normal coloration people just like glaring at each other, like in really weird poses. Yeah, that movie is really dependent on blue light. A blue filter for some reason? I don't know why that's like a. Anyways. So what spurned down that conversation was the idea. I, I actually found a bottle of wine that we've kind of been itching to drink called uh, it's it's Romanian wine from Romania, obviously, um, but it's called werewolf. Um, and we've kind of been looking for an excuse to drink it. And I don't think there's any more werewolves left in the book. So had an idea for for an episode next week, um, but we'll have to see. Um, but today we are. Uh, what are we doing, Alexa? Well, Why are any of us here? <laughs> what is the meaning of life? That's a loaded question. But, but, but why are we here? <laughs> why are we here in this moment, I guess? So um, this is the podcast also known as Midnight Book Club. And today we're recapping chapter seven of Lady of the Lake. I can't believe it. We're at the halfway point. And yes, you might say, well, shouldn't we already have hit the halfway point because we just passed chapter six? <laughs> well, no, you'd be incorrect. <laughs> you'd be very incorrect. Because this book is 500 pages and we've only just passed the halfway point. Yes, so. yes. Uh, there's only four chapters left, and there's still 250 pages. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, we're we're averaging about 40 pages per chapter, but that means the next four chapters are probably going to be 50 or 60 ish. So the next four full episodes might kind of be monsters. So that's going to be fun. Um, but th- it will be fun. Uh, so will it be fun or will it be fun? It's going to be both, honestly. Okay. Yeah, it, it really is. I'm I'm very excited. Um, I have, we have some ideas down, down the, down the road. We're getting many, into many uh, ideas. 
I'm a man of many ideas, Alexa. Yeah, I know that. Um, we're getting into. I'm not much of a doer. <sighs> I'm not much of a doer. I'm an idea guy. Okay, I can tell <laughs> that you're an idea guy. Um, have but you th- have we thought about going to the Wall Street Times? The Wall Street Times. The Wall Are Street Journal. <laughs> I, I am. <laughs> Just merging. Merging names, apparently. (laughs) Have we thought about starting a news outlet called the Wall Street Times and then pitching this idea to them? We haven't thought about that. Just, you know, keep that in the back of your mind. Okay, okay. um, I'm going to need you to get back to me on that one. I'll circle back to you on that. Okay, okay. Um, But for right now, we need to concentrate because we're getting into the final stage of our journey through the Witcher books. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little it's a little hard to believe that we're here. But yeah. we're going to start needing to buckle up because these last few chapters are going to be packed with a lot. Yes. Uh, there's some things that happen near the end of this chapter that you realize like how how much it's about to kind of just go off the rails. Yeah. Um, so before we get into anything, we wanted to offer a content warning for mm, tonight's mm-hmm. episode. There is a sexual assault um, and we will Again. give you a warning <laughs> yep. of when this is coming up. And we're going to put um, timestamps in the show notes just so you don't have to listen to it if it's not OK. Honestly, even though we are pretty much OK and not triggered by this, uh, it was still pretty bad to read we, honestly in our summary we we glossed over it pretty hard so like it's it, yeah i i cleaned it up a good bit in my notes <laughs> um but yeah it, it it this one actually gets kind of graphic um yes. and, and i think that's why it was a little bit more more upsetting um it's not like super graphic it's not any worse than anything that we've experienced up to this point but it's just kind of like i don't know it's a little you want to kind of shower afterwards kind of thing. It like, makes you feel gross. You feel kind of gross. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, a, it, um, it's very Rob, Rob zombie esque. Um, yeah, a little bit. It just, it makes your stomach kind of upset mm-hmm. and you know, it's just icky. So yeah, like we'll, I said, we'll give a warning when we get to that point mm-hmm. and I'll let you know where to skip to in the show notes. Yeah. I kind of thought we were past this content. And that's where you're wrong. Yeah. I, so we'll talk more about this in the summary, but um, I, or in the in the analysis portion. But I have some thoughts on why it keeps recurring, um, why the why this is a theme that keeps coming back and something that keeps happening. But there are a lot of bright spots in this chapter. Mm-hmm. This is a great chapter overall, honestly. This chapter is very series centric. We follow her journey through time and space. Mm-hmm. Very exciting, and I'm so excited. I kind of want to just get started with the summary. What do you think? I think I think we definitely should. Shall we? Shall we just kind of transition into the uh, the narrow and the wide? Uh, is that what you're calling it this week? Sure. The, the short and the narrow? The tall now, and the squat? Now I'm confused about what it was originally called. Good. I'm really not sure. My work anymore. here is done. <laughs> so we begin with a really funny reading um, that's a newspaper clipping about a guy who encountered an apparition that was a young girl, a black horse, and a unicorn. They basically imply that he saw this because he was drinking. But then we realize he's just encountered Siri traveling through time and space. And it's actually a news clip from England in 1906. So it's, it's something that takes place in our world, which is just sort of funny. 
we open on Siri riding into the horizon, and Herquax is talking to Siri telepathically, um, thinking, we have to go. Our only chance is a speedy escape. Siri says, I'm ready, and we hear the same faint buzzing in Siri's head and then a flash. And then we cut back to Namu and Conduirmers, who are looking over some etchings, and they're talking about a particular one with a unicorn in the etching, um, it turns out that some scholars don't believe this chapter of Siri traveling with a unicorn and a black horse really happened. They think that it's just an exaggeration, sort of a fairy taleization of the real historical legend. Um, but Namu and Kondwiramers aren't so sure. For one, they keep entering the historical record. There's just all of these etchings, and it seems like it was a favorite of artists to depict, uh, maybe even in spite of historians who believe it didn't take place like this. And they're speculating about how Siri maybe traveled through time. And Namu says that maybe the lake is sort of the common traveling port. Like, there's a lake in every timeline, and that's where she's traveling through. Conwirmers is kind of chiding Namu, saying like, hey, wait, I'm supposed to be the Orneromancer here, and suddenly you're prophesying like a sage. And Namu says, I'm talking about apparitions, the kind that change lives, and the course of history. So she's saying that this is important to her, it's meaningful to her, so of course she has, you know, thoughts and theories on this. We cut to a military unit marching um, to... Now, I already forgot how to pronounce this. Zluchov, which is a Polish town. Um, these are clearly German-based military guys. They're um, speaking German. There's a lot of German words that show up. And they appear to be some sort of noble crusaders. And they notice this glow down by the lake they're approaching. Uh, they were traveling um, through this area, and because it's the day before the Sabbath, they wanted to get fish because good Catholics know you eat fish on the Sabbath. Side note, uh, that was started in the 1920s uh, by the Pope at the time, um, who knew that there were a lot of Catholics that worked in the fish industry. Um, so he put forth a big initiative to eat fish on Fridays because it uh, got the Catholic population more income. Fun Catholic facts. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he is thinking, you know, even if we don't find this, you know, fisherman's hut, maybe we'll just eat whatever we have. Even if we have to eat bacon, you know, we'll eat that now and we'll confess our sins to the chaplain later and we'll make some sort of penance and then all will be absolved. Which I believe was a fantastic microcosm for all of Catholicism as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so uh, this guy keeps thinking that they're in this like heathen land. Like he keeps commenting about everything is like not graced by God's light. He seems very offended by this place. And um, he comments that every lake in this land is called holy and it's a disgusting affront to the real God. Um, but suddenly the narrator notices a strange buzzing in his head and he hears one of his men scream. And he whirls around and sees up on the ridge a girl riding a black mare and a white horse with a spiraling, twisting horn on its head. It's very stunning to him. The girl starts speaking in a language that no one understands. She says, Ira loke, ira ted, squesmang which basically means wrong place, wrong time. I was going to say, we're now getting enough 
elven that uh, I was starting to understand some of those words. Plus, wrong place, wrong time is what she's been saying every time she lands in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. So we kind of already knew that this is a common phrase that's going yeah. to be repeated. Yep. Um, and the guy who is the leader of this unit suddenly shouts out an invocation of the saints. Helga Maria Matergotes, which means um, Virgin Mary, Mother God. Um, Stemmer Bay and uh, basically what he's saying is like be with me I'm going to charge (laughs) Um, and he starts just charging full speed towards uh, the girl the horse and the unicorn and um, suddenly it just disappears in front of him and he's like what just happened and um, one of the knights was like maybe this was a miracle like maybe it was a sign from god and um the leader who was about to charge into this vision is like no absolutely not this is devil work this is black magic um by the way this is written in german so we actually could figure out what he was saying yeah actually it was kind of interesting all of this was in like the native german but then like the parts he needed to know were in english it was kind of weird, but it was kind of fun to be able to, it was pretty, pretty simple, simplistic German um, that we were able to pick up. Yeah. And so uh, the leader of this um, military unit um, says, let's go. And he thinks to himself that there's much work to be done here, much work to drive the devilry out of these Slavic lands. We need to make haste to be within earshot of church bells. Yes, I, I kind of loved that line. That it's he, so <laughs> spooky and devilly here. Yeah. Um, so we did look up a little bit of history on this Teutonic order, mm-hmm. um, which was a medieval order, mm-hmm. um, German, obviously, and they basically occupied parts of Poland mm-hmm. after being invited to yeah. be there by the Polish prince, and they were just like, "Yeah, this is our land now." So this this was all realistically historically accurate. Like where they were, where they were going, like these were all like real places and real things, um, which shouldn't be a surprise to us from Anse. Um, but it's really amazing to me that he's able to work in all this like history, biology, ecology, economics, like linguistics with no internet. Like, and also we got to remember in, this is before the internet. Like, also get in a little history about the tragedy um, yeah. that surrounds Polish history. Yeah, so. and he, yeah, he was able to in like a paragraph work in like some of the Polish historic tragedy. Like that's that we never amazing knew about. We never nope, heard about nope, this. Never so. even heard of it. Yep. So Siri um, is talking to a Herakwax and she's getting a little frustrated and she keeps saying like, please try. It's important that we get back to my time. My friends need me. Like first we come upon this boorish fisherman, then a bunch of shaggy heads with clubs and then a bunch of knights with black crosses on their cloaks. And a Herakwax is like, I'm trying. This isn't exactly a direct science. Like it's not easy to just go to the right place in the right time, but um Ciri's head begins buzzing loudly and the world goes dark again and they're traveling to their next place so we cut to Namu, who's running down the shores of the lake with a man um now that she's 18 she's a real mage and um we know by the way from her age that this is a flashback um so this man and Namu are starting to get busy 
And um, during their activities, Nimue notices this buzzing in her head. And she looks over the man's shoulder because he's on top of her because wink, wink. Um, and she knows immediately that this is some kind of magic. So then she sees a girl with a scar on her face on the back of a black mare down the lake shore. And Nemu thinks to herself, but I know that fairy tale. I know the story of Siri, the witcher girl with the scar on her face. And the girl, upon seeing Nemu and the man, says, oops, wrong time again. And it looks like it's a bad time, too. Sorry, I'll be going. And Nemu clamors to try to get from under the sky, but he's enjoying himself a little too much. And Nemu says, wait, don't go. I don't want you to leave. But she's already gone. She's already disappeared. And um, Namu bites the shoulder of the man and he is like, hey, what's wrong? Because he hasn't noticed anything that's been going on for the past 10 seconds. And um, she's like, just hold me. And a small tear trickles down her cheek. Um, and the, the man is like, oh, I know what happened. Did the earth move? Which uh, is- oh, I know what happened. Did the earth move? <laughs> Did you have an orgasm? Yeah. And uh, Namu is like... It did much more than just move. Um, And she's very emotional, obviously. Everything Um, moved. And this really draws back to um, Nemu's story about something changing. Like, she really loved this story as a young girl. She heard it from the wizard Pog... Not wizard. She heard it from the traveling storyteller uh, Pogwizid. And... um, she kind of abandoned it as she got older, but this is the incident that brought it back to her mind because, like, now she's really passionate about it. Like, what happened? I want to figure out what happened to Siri. I forgot that she had said that. Um, I forgot that she had said that something happened when she was older. I wonder if we're going to see condomers do something similar. Maybe. Hmm. Um, so we cut to the next place that Siri traveled to in time, and this place is hard and broken. It seems almost dead. And Siri is shaken because as Kelpie's hooves are hitting something, it feels like rock. And Siri is noticing that something smells worse than anything she has ever experienced. It's like the stench of death, but whatever is smelling like that probably didn't even smell good in life. Um, and the unicorn suddenly materializes next to them and it is really disturbed by the smell as well. And Siri is like, let's get out of here. And Siri realizes, um, that they're on a road, um, or at least what used to be a road. And, um, she's thinking it might be too hard to ride on. And she navigates Kelpie off to the side of the road where there's corpses of trees what used to be trees. Siri and Kelpie are riding along and they slide down this embankment. And um, it's made out of some type of scree or pottery and it pops underfoot and it emits a horrible smell. And Kelpie is struggling to get out and eventually she does and they joyfully get back on the road. So Siri looks off to her right out into the burning red sky and she notices that she's covered in ash. Off to her right, there is a lake, but it's so sickly and black that it's pitch. And everything seems to be like glowing in the embers of fire. Siri says, you know, we need to leave this place. I feel sticky all over. Come, little horse, let's go. And a Huracrox communicates like, 
hey, like you need to take the reins. You need to travel now. And Siri says, I don't control this power. I need your guidance. And Siri realizes suddenly that she actually does control this and she can do it. And she takes one last look at this world and she thinks, I'm glad this isn't my world. And Herquox um, responds like, well, do you really know it's not your world? And Siri is like, well, even if it is my world, it's, you know, a very different time. And I think it's definitely in the past. Yeah, definitely the past. Maybe some wishful thinking there. So the next place they travel to, and Siri is doing the traveling now, um, they're in a heavy downpour and everything smells like she's used to. It smells like wet earth and like everything's just sort of alive again which is very welcome to them. They, they welcome the downpour. After a while, though, it becomes monotonous and it gives them chills, and so they want to jump to another place. And so they jump to the next place, and it's very hot, and the three of them steam like kettles as all of the water evaporates off of them. And um, they trudge along what used to be some sort of jungle, and Siri hopes that it might be like Brokelon at some time, at some place. Siri thinks maybe this is Brokelon. Siri asks Heraquax, how do we know that they're not following us? Meaning, you know, the elves and the Red Riders. And Heraquax neighs, and Siri says like, well, what do you mean? Have we just not fled far enough? And Heraquax responds, and it's something that Siri doesn't quite understand. He says that time is a spiral. There is no near or far. And a pang of dread echoes in Siri's heart. And it's doubled when the blistering heat of the day gives way to the coolness of the night. And um, not one moon, but two moons rise in the sky, meaning this is definitely not her world. So the next place they travel to is a seashore. And there's um, a skeleton of this giant fish. Siri doesn't think these kinds of fish exist in her world. Its teeth were three spans wide and like you could easily just ride your horse in it and you'd probably have enough room. She sees all these seabirds and lots of fowl and life, but it doesn't seem like these seabirds have ever seen humans before and they're just sort of like pecking at them. And uh, suddenly a Heraquax whinnies with trepidation and Siri realizes why. The air above the cliff side cracks open into darkness, and from it, riders clad in ghoulish red skeleton patterned armor pour out on horses. This is the Red Riders. This again. is the Red Riders, the Wild Hunt. This is Erebor? Er- Eridan, sorry. Eridan. He had a very Lord of the Rings name, and I went like full Lord of the Rings there for a second. A second crack opens in the sky and um, they realize that they are surrounded and Herquox is pointing out that there's this one place where they could pass through and he basically tells Siri to save herself and Siri cries out, don't leave, um, but he's already lassoed by the Red Riders and she feels a twinge in her head and she understands immediately and she knows that the only thing that matters right now is that she's able to get away. And so she rides with Kelpie um, and is going as fast as she can to get away. And um, she feels this wooziness as she's riding away and she realizes that they're trying to cast a spell on her. And she knows that spells have a range, so the only way that she can really avoid it is if she goes fast enough. So she urges Kelpie to go even faster. She bears down on Kelpie 
and she even ducks down to um, reduce air resistance. And she can hear them getting tired and their voices are sounding more distant and um, she jumps through time again. And she's back on the moors and she realizes she's all alone again. And the strong howling hot wind dries the tears on her cheek and she realizes that she's alone. Um, She is a lonely sailor on an archipelago of time. And this archipelago of time concept keeps coming around um, again and again in this chapter. So we cut back to Nemu and Conduire Mers in the present, um, or I guess one present, (laughs) because there's a lot of presents. In their present time. (laughs) As they're watching the sunset, Nemu says um, to Conduire Mers, this will be a good night. I can Feel it. And Conduermers isn't so certain because Namu is always saying this. She had heard this promise before, and they can hear the Fisher King cursing loudly on the lake as he's losing another catch. Um, Namu starts talking about time. She says that time is a never ending circle, that Uroboros is the snake eating its own tail, that it's a series of archipelagos in time, um, and because they're right before the summer solstice, um, tonight's a good time for magic. And she says she has a good feeling. She says to Conduirmers, isn't it important for a sailor alone in a storm at sea um, that there's a lighthouse, an anchoring reference point? And we realize that Nemu intends to be that lighthouse, that guide for Siri. So Siri is still jumping through different places. In one um, place, a woman is screaming, being burned at the stake. She goes to another um, place where this giant city is on fire, a place with thousands of white sails moving in unison, a place with thousands of snakes out on rocks, and a place of darkness where there's no light and just whispers. And of course, none of them are the right place. So Siri realizes she's beginning to be able to move pretty easily, at least through places, not exactly time. So she begins to experiment. And one place that she is not afraid of is this warm moor, the place where she had seen the two moons. Um, And um, after focusing on it, she's able to jump to it easily. And um, after some time, she becomes emboldened to try something more adventurous. So um, she wants to experiment with moving through time, and she thinks that the city on fire can't always be on fire, right? So she jumped through time, and she lands directly in the fire, like in the middle of the fire, and it scorches one of her eyebrows, and she terrifies all of the people who are fleeing from the city on fire. (laughs) So she immediately jumps back to safety in the moors. Um, She thinks maybe that she should just focus on places because she's not so um, equipped with traveling through time quite yet and she tries focusing on places she knows in the continent like the temple of Melitol, uh, the bank where Fabio Sachs worked, Caramoran, but she wasn't able to conjure them no matter how she tried and so she thinks maybe I'll try Vizima where Yennefer and I used to shop. So we cut to an astronomer who's studying a comet with a red tail And this also gives us an indication that this is the place that she wants to travel to because this is March of 1273. This is the place and time where Yare is in Vizima as well. So this is the right time. 
So this astronomer is um, studying this comet because it's very interesting, because comets with red tails indicate war, conflict, and, um, you know, all kinds of conflicts. Um, but he thinks that the predictions are a bit early since the war with Nilfgaard is already in full scale. Um, and there's so much violence happening every day, it feels like a weird prediction. Like, what is it actually predicting since there are so many people dying each day? Yeah, this is just like a, a regular thing. Like, why is the comet predicting that more is going to happen? Or is it predicting that more is going to happen? Or is it predicting something else? Yeah. Um, and he's studying this comet because he thinks it, it might be interesting to try to predict when the comet will come around again, predicting some sort of other strife. So, you know, he's very deep in thought and he really doesn't have time to go all the way to the bathroom to pee. So he does what Gerald would never do. And he pees off the side of the building that he's on. Um, and as he's relieving himself, um, a light occurs in the courtyard. Emerging from it is a girl on a black mare. And the girl says, pardon me, sir, would you happen to know what place this is? What time? And the astronomer can't get out a full sentence or even a word. He keeps saying, er, um, uh, and the girl is like, the place, the time. And the astronomer is like, huh? And the girl is like, well, I suppose it's the wrong place and the wrong time again. But before I go, are you able to mutter even like a single comprehensible word? And the astronomer responds, eh? And she's like, okay, well, I find it hard to believe that I'm in a place where there's no constructed language. Um, anyway, fine. Uh, bugger you then, you old goat. And then in a flash, she's gone. And the astronomer doesn't really seem to miss a beat from this. He's just like, I'm going to go back to studying my comet. Um, after all, significant events need to be studied and cataloged. But I guess he's not going to give a second thought to what the hell just happened some, like right in front of him. Some girl apparating in the courtyard like in front of him and then disappearing two seconds later doesn't count as significant events, I guess. Okay. All right, cool. Um, it was a little funny, too, because he was like, if only there's like a spark of inspiration. Mm -hmm. He's thinking to himself right before she apparates. But, you know to each his own i guess yeah, scientific pursuits are um you know in the eye of the beholder yeah and and like i said in the last episode like comets are historically very distinct markers that like historians use to like anchor like realistic dates because they are a known event mm -hmm. that can very easily be ascribed to and like an exact marker of time so we cut to Siri back on the moors, um, her central place, and she's looking up at the two moons on the horizon, and she thinks, maybe I can just try wishing, something I want deep in my belly, something I very much want. And she thinks, I want to go to Geralt. I very much want to go to Geralt. Um, Siri and Kelpie travel to the middle of this violent blizzard, and she's like, oh no, where did I end up now? So much for my abilities, so much for my powers. I wanted to go to Geralt, and I ended up somewhere in the middle of a bloody blizzard. Um, so they move out into the blizzard um, to avoid freezing. Um, and we cut to the party, and we know, of course, that the party is moving through a blizzard, crossing the Malheur Pass on their way out of Toussaint. And um, they see these horse tracks in the snow, and it's very weird because there are no humans up here, much less horses. Um so they're all like debating, like, could this really be a horse? And um, 
Kay here is like, well, maybe it was just a mouflon. And Angle M is like, well, we've got to follow this trail and see where it leads. Like it might lead us to a farm or something. Maybe they'll let us get warm there. And Regis is kind of the naysayer here. He points out like, we're supposed to be going this way. Let's not get off track chasing like some weird creature. It doesn't seem like it's possible that there would be a horse up here. Um, and Geralt is really adamant on following the tracks. And so despite everyone's protestations, he's just like, let's go. And so they follow it for about a quarter of a mile or so, and the tracks just stop dead. And everyone's very confused with this. And Kay here is like, where did the horse prints go? They just stop. And Milva says, well, they were probably just covered up by the snow. And Angolem is like, no, the snow doesn't reach out here in the canyon. Like, why did we want to follow these hoof prints anyways, Geralt? And Geralt says, I don't actually know. Something touched me. I felt something. And he, he's like, well, maybe it was just a mouflon after all. And Regis says, come on, let's keep moving. This canyon pass is where the winter is going to get really nasty. And Geralt's like, yeah, you're right. Let's go. Um, even though some of them are like, we've got to find out what happened to this horse. But Geralt wants to move on. So we cut to Siri, who's back in the moor, and um, she realizes it's not the moor that she knew. It's different, for sure. Um, the trees aren't the same, and there definitely are more animals here, more birds. She's hearing more creatures, and um, her heartbeat grows faster as she sees um, some tracks and she notices an old man watching her from the trees and Siri addresses the old man and says fear not I'm not going to hurt you and the old man is like Forrest Gramps isn't worried he's not one of them fearful types um, and he says I'm not going to hurt you either is Miss afraid and Siri says of course not um, Kelpie wants to bite him right away, and Siri apologizes. She says, sorry, my mare doesn't like strangers, and she bites. And Forrest Gramp says he isn't afraid of mares either, and he invites her into the woods for some food. Um, he says that his cottage isn't too far away from here, and Siri agrees. She's hungry, and um, so she follows Forrest Gramps back to his cottage while Kelpie keeps trying to bite him, um, or at least try to eat his hat. And they arrive back at the cabin, um, which has this chopping block and an axe out front, which is probably a red flag um, right off the bat. And this cottage is... Eh, not necessarily. I mean, there, there's a lot of, like, living rurally, like, when you have to raise your own livestock to eat them, like, you have to butcher them in some way. So, not necessarily a super red flag in this time and place, but... Well... We'll see. We'll see. Um, and so this cottage is very rustic. It's been patched up many times. It is decorated with what looks like pigskins. And um, Forrest Gramps asks how long it's been um, since Siri had meat. And she says it's been a while. And Forrest Gramps says, like, why don't you look over there? And um, she realizes that she's fallen for the oldest trick in the book. And um, Forrest Gramps is able to hit her square in the head with his gnarled staff, which is more like a club. 
Um, Siri is able to cushion the blow slightly with her reflexes, but is still knocked to the ground. So this is where we'll offer a content warning. Um, there is descriptions of sexual assault. We'll gloss over it as much as possible, but if you are triggered by that, if that isn't okay for you to read, then we will put in the show notes where you can skip to. Forrest Grams is able to hit her with this club at least a few more times, and Siri blocks at least one of the blows with her hand, and she realizes that it's probably very injured as a result. Um, and Forrest Gramps flips her over and shoves her face in the ground, and he's able to pull her pants down very quickly, and he flings her sword away. And as things start to get worse, um, suddenly Forrest Gramps screams um, and Kelpie has actually grasped him by the hair and has lifted him off his feet by his scalp. Siri swings her leg to kick him but is caught by her pants being around her thighs. Um, And Forrest Gramps swings and hits her square in the stomach while she's pulling up her pants, which makes her stumble over her sword. So um, she is able to grab her sword, though. She unsheaths it, and Forrest Gramps grabs a nearby axe and lunges at her. Siri quickly ducks and slices up along his armpits. Um, He's very wily, but it's just a lucky break. She's able to get the better of him, and he stumbles with blood pouring down his chest. Um, He turns and lunges at her one more time like an animal, and Siri slices him right across the neck, ensuring that he was soon to die. This is the end of the content warning, so it's safe now. Um, So Siri spits the last of the dirt out of her mouth, and um, she waits until Forrest Gramps is dead, um, and it happens relatively quickly, so glad he's gone. So Siri explores the cottage and she finds the cauldron that Forrest Gramps had promised her earlier. It has some pearled barley and some chunks of meat. Um, And despite the fact that Siri has nothing in her stomach, something tells her not to eat the food. Now she explores more. She's vindicated that she did not eat this food because she sees that um, the chopping block out front had a hook attached to a block and tackle in front of the block. So real quick aside for anyone that, that doesn't know what a block and tackle is, it's basically like a ratchet um, for like a like a, a, a tow hook or something like that. Um, and so it had a hook on it and it was basically in front of the chopping block. Um, so the idea being that there'd really only be one use for that would be to hold someone or something down while you had them stretched across the chopping block. Um, yeah. So Siri rounds the cottage, um, and she finds the entrance to the basement, and as she descends, she sees a side of meat hanging in the basement. And Siri bolts out of there as if chased by the devil, and she runs over to a support beam and vomits excessively because she's realized that the side of meat was half of a child. Fun! Yeah, we're having a lot of fun here. So Siri follows the smell to a water-filled hollow where he had dumped the remains of his victims and whatever he couldn't eat. There were, there's an excessive amount of skulls, pelvises, rib cages. Siri rolls Forrest Gramps out there and dumps him in the slime pit to forever be haunted by the spirits of his victims. Um, Siri reflects on the fact that if he had been less lecherous and, let's face it, rapey, 
um, and more hungry, he could have just easily killed her. He would have just attacked her with the axe. Um, so Siri decides that this cottage needs to be stamped off the face of this world and she sets fire to it and she waits until the fire is large enough that no rain could extinguish it and that no trace of this place would remain. So Siri walks back through the moors even though um, this planet only had one moon. Siri knew that this was not her home. So we cut to Con Wiermer's. Nemu is repeating that tonight is going to be a good night. And Con Wiermer's, um, who remains skeptical, says, How many nights have we sat like this with a beautiful sunset and thought that this was going to be a good night? And Nemu nods and Con Wiermer says, I've been dreaming a lot lately about mountains frozen over with winter upon you know frozen lakes and deep below it i see an entire world of people crying out for help into the frozen abyss and she knows what this is from she knows that this dream is recalling ithlene's prophecy that foretells this white frost the time of the wolfish blizzard um and every time there's a particularly harsh winter everyone seems to believe that this great frost this white frost has finally come this is the one this is the winter this is the time it finally comes but namu is a firm believer in this prophecy she is like starting to explain this phenomena and um Conwirmers says you know like i understand all the theories you know i'm not you know I, I believe in the heliocentric model of the solar system. I know how all of this works. And so Namu starts talking about the logistics of how this great frost would work. It's sort of the same thing we've heard before. Um, basically, like because the Earth, they describe it as the Earth, even though it's not our Earth. Yeah, I did. I did actually stop you and, and ask you if they use the term Earth. And, and they do. Um Basically, they kind of go into like a like a two or three page long description of like the movement of, of celestial bodies within the solar system. Yes. And the Cliff Notes version of it is that the Earth revolves around the sun in this elliptical pattern. So it's kind, kind of, of like an egg shape. It's an egg shape. It's a little um, it's not like even by any means. And so the idea is that it just sort of keeps going further out, further and further away from the sun. Um, and Nemu talks about how, like, it's anecdotally gotten a lot colder lately um, in the last 200, 100 years in particular. She talks about how um, it's gotten colder in ports that, you know, in places where snow was once a really uncommon occurrence it's become you know more and more frequent and so um she she mentions to con Wimmers like hey did you know that they used to hundreds of you know several hundred years ago they used to grow grapes in i think it was tucson in Cadewin. In Ca- Cadewin, not that was in it. tucson you're right, you're right. um in Cadewin. in Cadewin, which is to the um the northeast so it's sure. like the northeast <laughs> corner it's um like across the mountain range from Redamia. Mm. So she she mentions how in Cade when they used to grow wine, maybe it wasn't the best wine or anything, but like they used to grow it and it was good enough for the poets to sing about. But now there are no vines. The frost has just killed everything. Yeah, the winters are now too intense in that area for there to be grapes year round. 
Um, and she says that this is going to keep happening. It's just going to keep getting colder and that Ethleen's prophecy is correct. It's just going much slower than anyone thought. Um, and there's only one thing that can really save them from this, a chosen one. And we know that that chosen one is Siri, but they know that she didn't succeed, at least not yet, but it's still possible that she could, because as we know, time is you know, a Ouroboros, it's time is eating its own tail. So maybe they can guide her. Maybe they can help her fulfill that destiny. So Conwirmer has asked Nimue, how much longer do we have? And Nimue says, maybe 3,000 years or so. Oh, only 3,000 years? Oh, no. Well, that's, that's I mean, still, yeah, you know. Yeah, like there's, there's, a, there's a deadline, but... You got some time, like, you guys could probably figure out intergalactic travel at that point, like... Maybe. Hopefully. <laughs> Good God, hopefully. So, uh, we cut to Siri, who's in a new world, and it's got to be, like, the worst place she's been to, and that sort of saying a lot. Oh, no. It's a port, and it's a port with ships and a forest of masts, but everything seems really screwy. She notices it's very quiet. Um, there's just, like, people seemingly sleeping everywhere but she doesn't think they're gonna wake up and also just a bunch of dead rats um and she feels just this dread that she should run from this place and she notices a pale blue smoke that has an acrid sickly smell to it that permeates everything as she rides on she sees houses with white crosses on the door and she hears children crying and no one seems to notice And then she looks down at her hands and they're absolutely covered with fleas, like little caraway seeds. Um, And Siri screams, which startles Kelpie, who starts running. Um, So they're barreling down the side and she's like just shaking every, you know, limb, trying to get these fleas off of her. And um, she sees several people who seem to be covered with pustules um, and they cry out, to her in a language she doesn't know and there are just piles of corpses in the street and even in the black nothingness of the void like siri could still smell that smoke it was embedded in her nose i would like to point out those are some giant ass fucking fleas um so like anybody that's ever experienced fleas on their like pets um they're not that big they're like the size of like pepper flakes um and so to hear them described as caraway seeds that's that's like an order of like 10 times larger Ooh. like yeah i don't know if that was realistic but also for anyone that didn't piece it together that was the plague ridden uh 1100s uh of europe yeah so this is the bubonic plague. this was the bubonic plague yes um so she travels to the next place but it's a normal port like people are you know going about their business there's no one dying um at least not yet She's um, like, oh, hey, everything stinks, but it's normal. It's, it's normal port stink. <laughs> like, um, so everything smells like fish um, in its basic varieties, fresh, rotten, and fried. And um, she understands two men talking near her, and she realizes they're talking about herring. And then she realizes she's actually in Nilfgaard. Um, and she's a little scared about that because she knows she's uh, wanted in this area and so she quickly disappears into the void but before she does one of the fleas that hitched a ride 
in her jacket. She shook off all the other ones. Um, but this little flea who traveled through time leaps off her jacket and with a mighty flea jump. With a mighty flea jump to Nilfgaard and hitches a ride on a mangy rat, the veteran of many rat battles, as we're told. Missing um, one of his ears. And this mangy rat and this plague-ridden flea embark on the voyage of a lifetime the next day across the ocean. Um, and no one knew it, but this ship would pass into infamy. It's called the Catriona. Um, but we'll just have to see <laughs> what possible effects this could have. But I'm we know that this is uh, sort of the... Uh, Patient zeros. Yes. <laughs> patient zero of the plague in the continent. So for anyone who doesn't necessarily know like the life cycle of the bubonic plague, um, basically, real quick, it's basically um, there were fleas that hitched rides on rats um, that would then jump off of the rats and bite people and pass the plague onto the people. Um the other fleas would then bite the people who had the plague, um, ingest it and in, internalize it, host it, um, and then hop off onto rats who would then travel to other places and carry the plague with them. So Siri accidentally started a plague. Siri started the fucking bubonic plague in Nilfgaard. <laughs> so that's fun. That's fun. Uh- <laughs> I, I don't know where that landed in time, so um, maybe good, maybe bad. Um, either way, plague is generally bad. Yeah, that, that's in general. I mean, that's what they say. Take a look at COVID and what we've been living through for the past two years and just multiply that by a thousand. Yep. So we cut to the next place and it's actually a welcome place. It's a very idyllic little tavern with a thatched roof with a river running nearby. And Siri thinks it's so nice. She wanders inside. Um, she sees that there's this sign. Um, she can't read the language, but it has this black cat. So she assumes that it's the black cat tavern. So she goes inside and she sits at a table with her back against the wall. And a nice jovial innkeeper comes up to her and speaks to her in this sing-songy language that Siri doesn't understand but she um, starts using the universal language of pointing to her open mouth and rubbing her stomach and the innkeeper understands Um, so she cuts off one of the silver buttons off her shirt and places it on the table for payment the woman is just like sort of amazed at what's happening here and um, Siri starts to cut off a second button but the innkeeper is like no Um, she interrupts her with a sharp hissing word and so it turns out what one silver button pays for is a uh, hearty bowl of soup, a mug of beans, and a glass of warm, watered-down wine. And the food is so good that Siri almost cries because I don't think she's eaten in, like, maybe a week. Um, and so the woman gestures, clasping her hands together um, and pressing them to her cheek and pointing upstairs, like, will you spend the night? And Siri shrugs and says she doesn't know, um, though she's tempted. Um, and so the innkeeper leaves and the same black cat that's painted on the sign jumps down off the hearth and rubs against Siri's calf. And, um, as Siri eats, she leans back against the wall and suddenly she sees Yare kicking over jars with red liquid in them and saying, you have to do, um, you have to do it when the motherland calls. 
And then she sees Yennefer um, riding along um, through a town. She is using magic to suspend a mirror so she can, um, you know, see herself. And there's a comb going through her hair. And um, Siri looks at her hands and realizes why she's doing that. And it's because her hands are bloody stumps. Um, and then she sees um, a large tower in the middle of the lake with a giant looking glass in it and two women wrapped in furs sitting on a terrace. And then Yare is marching to the beat of a drum. He's holding a halberd that's bigger than he is. And something suddenly touches Siri's hair and Siri grabs for her sword. But she realizes that she's just fallen asleep in the tavern and that it's the innkeeper woman who is stroking her hair. Um, Siri usually really hates when someone touches her without her um, consent, of course, but this is sort of familiar and she kind of allows her to do it. It's a very maternal moment and Siri kind of relishes it. And Siri, um, as she comes out of the stream, is like, Mama, Mama, I'm coming for you. Um, and so she says she has to be off. She runs out of the inn and um, she disappears on the back of Kelpie and uh, the innkeeper of the Chat Noir um, calls out to her, Bon chance! Um, and we realize that this is France and this innkeeper in um, little old medieval France has witnessed Siri traveling through time. Um, so, actually, I looked up Le Chat Noir, um, and the history of Le Chat Noir was that it was the first burlesque club. It was the first nightclub. The idea of mm. a nightclub um, was started by... So, all those like stereotypical posters of Le Chat Noir you see at like, Pier 1 and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, like on it Target, you know, um, is actually for the, the Black Cat Nightclub, which was a burlesque show. Um, in 1920s France. Um, so this may have actually been the early 19th century, depending on, I mean, we don't have a, a ton of references here, um, but that would also have been some 19, uh, early 19th century French cuisine, which may have also explained why she possibly came close to crying while eating it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I, I thought that was kind of neat. It didn't quite, because I got more of a medieval vibe from the tavern as well. Um, but it was it was France somewhere in there. Anyways, a little nice uh, time travel for the end of that journey. Yeah, which I yeah, that was uh, it was a good reprieve. It was for a, all of us. Uh, yeah, and uh, like I kind of love that. Like we felt the relief as the reader. Yeah, we're like of just finally, like, <laughs> she's just in a place where she can rest. She can fall asleep at the table and not have to worry about anything. Like. Yes. Um, so Siri concentrates again and she feels a buzzing in her head and she focuses on a place and she sees a tower with two women wrapped in fur on a terrace. And we cut to Nemu who's gasping in amazement. Uh, the Fisher King is even like stopped dead in his tracks on the on the water and is just looking up kind of dumbstruck the fisher king actually like slaps his oars down into the water which is a really bad idea if you're out in a rowboat because there's a good chance you're not going to get him back and he's heard (laughs) cursing like 300 feet up in the air away by the people out on the terrace so the sky is cracking open um into blinding light and a girl on a black mare rides out and this is the moment Mimi has been waiting for and she gestures wildly at the tapestry behind them the tapestry of Vilgefortz's hideout and um at the 
kind of like looking glass that I indicated before, but this is going to be the destination. And so she just starts like gesturing wildly, like both her and Con Weirmers are just like moving their arms like like crazy people. She does she casts a spell where the the tapestry like bursts into flames <laughs> of like different colors and stuff. It's really cool. Yes. I don't really necessarily get why the tapestry like exploded into flame, but I mean, all right, cool. Um they they both like she starts opening a portal? Yeah, they're opening Go a ahead. portal using the looking glass. Um, remember I told you the looking glass was kind of important. This mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why. Okay, yep, yep. Um, And the vision of the other side of this portal becomes clear. It's a castle with a thousand shipwrecks on it set into the side of a mountain. This should all sound very familiar to us. Um, But I already kind of gave it away because it's Vogelforts' hideout. Um, yeah, I mean, like, the, the a castle in the side of a mountain with a thousand shipwrecks at its feet, like... That really only describes one place that we've experienced so true, far in the true. in the story. So hopefully people are paying attention. <laughs> hopefully I I was I'm pretty slow on catching the references, and I I caught that one pretty quick. So so Nemu shouts out, Princess Cirilla, daughter of Pavetta, go now. This is the way you must go. Go forth to your destiny. Nemu says, You can trust me. Remember, you've seen me before. And Siri's like. Yes, I have seen you before, so I trust you. And of course, it's like probably only been like a couple of days since that happened for her. So she rides toward this portal, and uh, Namu and Conduirmers watch as she goes to the right place in the right time, finally. And they scream out like um, right as she travels through the portal, good luck. And it's really cute. And it mirrors like the moment that just happened with the innkeeper earlier. And they both just kind of sit there and stare. What now? Okay, what now? (laughs) (laughs) That was like the grand purpose of my life. What now? I like picture this scene very much as like them having like these giant like arrows that yes. are like flashing like <laughs> they got this like the, way. Like, they got like the flashlights with the little cones on them like they've the air, got air, air traffic, traffic guys like, <laughs> with like a whole bunch of like runway lights that are flashing in the direction of the portal like oh this way and then she goes through and everything's like everything turns off and they're just kind of like all right well do you want to like learn how to play an instrument or something because <laughs> like, i don't know this was kind of like everything that i was trying to do with my life well all right <laughs> so and scene and scene. our stage is kind of set now like we have yep. all of the players in position mm-hmm, for this mm-hmm. final event whatever that's going to be and i'm getting pretty excited like i already kind of know where this is leading but i don't know i'm excited to share this with like you john mark Mm -hmm. and like with all of our listeners because although it's going to be very emotionally heavy like this is what we've been working Mm -hmm. toward for a long time and so we're like finally we're gonna see everyone collide again yeah yeah (laughs) the band is all getting back together um yeah i i i'm very excited i was very excited to see that like this is kind of what it came together for and this is why like why we're here like like i said i was very excited when i saw the 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 shipwrecks through the portal uh yeah i was like there's only one place that could be um it's kind of fun to finally see her pointed in the right direction you know as much as this was a really really fun chapter and you can tell anse had a lot of fun writing it because like 
it's it's literally just series adventures in time. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, and I told you like a long time ago that we would get to this place where she's just sort of traveling and like seeing yeah. all these places and all these times. And like it was hard to describe then. And it's a little bit like we start with a very kind of conventional story. Yeah. Like yeah. there are definitely magical elements of it. Like magic is always a part of it. But it sort of just goes off the rails in the best possible way in Lady of the Lake. Like we take all yeah, of the things yep. that we've learned about the world mm-hmm. um, and then everything sort of breaks. And then we are like traveling through time and space with Siri. Yep. And what's really fun about this, and we've talked about high cost magic so much, but it's also like high cost time travel Mm -hmm. like i think a lot of times in literature and media time travel is sort of like not magical it's sort of like described as just something you do there's this an invention there's just Mm -hmm. an invention and we don't really talk about how it happens it just happens um i'm talking mostly about like back to the future yeah yeah um so i was gonna say uh, this is a this chapter is a really good illustration of um, one of the the core tenets of like good story writing and good DMing, I always relate things back to being a, a DM because like um, I'm not really a story writer, <laughs> um, but like the the closest thing I've I've gotten is to being a DM. Um, but like one of the core rule, one of the core things to be a, good at it is that you really do need to have rules for your world. Yes. Um, you have to have rules for your world that everything, everyone and everything adheres to. Once those rules are established, you can break them, but they need to be rare exceptions. Um, and this is a good way to do it. You have a character who like, so you've we've established that time travel is first off a very rare thing. Yeah. Second off, the few people who can do it are very limited in their capacity to do it. Mm-hmm. You look at the elves, they can generally only travel to like one other place at a time kind of thing. Um, so the exceptions in this in this situation being unicorns, which are exceedingly rare in this universe already, but they act as kind of a spirit guide for Siri, who is the ultimate exception to this rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once you kind of ha- see how everything else is limited, having that one character, that one what one thing, that one ability that does break these rules seems special. Yeah. And, and that's I- where you that you need it to seem special. It, it can't be like a regular thing that any mm-hmm. any Joe off the street can do in order to have any weight or gravity or like it, in- enjoyment for the reader or the experiencer. Yeah, and I think we've been really primed for this because we we kept hearing about like Ouroboros, you know, time is a snake eating its own tail. So we kind of knew this was coming, but it's not until this chapter that what that actually means is crystallized. Like that at any time, like Siri could appear and change things because she is this key. She is she is the exception. She's the, yes. she's the chosen one. Tm. And I also like, and and there's a lot of, you know, criticism about like so-called Mary Sue's people that yeah. are women, let's be clear about what that means. There are, there are Gary Lou's, that is a thing that exists, but it's generally it's predominantly generally a, a term for yep. um, like women that just are really good at something without a lot of explanation. And I think there's probably a lot of um, fair criticism of that term mm. because 
it's unfairly leveraged against women. But there is something to be said about just storytelling and showing people sort of coming to grips with their power. And with Siri, we've always seen that. We've seen it's like gradual. It's not like she masters something overnight. And so this really fits into that. Um, She has to learn how to use this power. Like a Heraquax kind of pushes her like out of the nest a little bit. This Mm -hmm, chapter, like mm -hmm. you got to do this on your own. And she realizes she's always had the power, but controlling it is easier said than done. Yeah. So it was good to see her like move through time with a lot of difficulty. Yeah. And and realistically, like that is how you break the idea of a character being a Mary Sue is that you show the sweat equity that goes into them learning this. We've we've seen and sometimes you don't have the time for it, but there's ways you can kind of you look at your montages, you know, (laughs) Um, there's ways you can you can kind of work around that. But like this is the ultimate way to not have to either work around it or to not ha- to break the that idea mm-hmm. um we've seen her working towards this for almost four books now um since she first experienced her her abilities like this is you know this has been a long time coming of her and eventually like once she kind of gets the hang of it she just picks it up um, and like she, we do know that she's a fast learner like that that's that's fine like that's in there and you can kind of use that to accelerate mm-hmm. like but she still has to have that that initial like training of like yep okay now you've you've seen how it's done now you need to do it and now you have this skill okay cool and there you go there that's that absolves all idea of like just this weird like written art uh, you know author type intent of just imparting you know oh this person's just naturally good at things you know what i mean yeah and i I think it's it's interesting that she's better at places than times like she realizes she thinks she's better at places than she is at times Well, she's getting better at it but it is very interesting to see her like try to do something and struggle it's not like she can travel anywhere she wants and it is also funny to see that misconnection she has yes which (laughs) we'll get into a little later because we have a lot to talk about there um but should we get into a nightcap i think we should absolutely get into a nightcap the one thing i was going to say though uh before we get into that was that um that struggle is what makes a relatable character um have you ever have you ever gotten on a skateboard yes Okay, were you immediately naturally perfectly good at it? Yeah, I'm pretty much Tony Hawk. I know you are. <laughs> um, you're naturally good at everything, dear. But the first time I got on a skateboard, I was terrible and almost broke my face. <laughs> um, so that struggle, I, I have also never since set foot on a skateboard. Um, I It is not something that I will have a natural ability for, but um, that's neither here nor there. But that struggle of like learning a skill is very relatable. Everybody can relate to that, to, to learning to be good at something. Um, and, and so seeing a character go through that kind of a struggle to learn something is innately relatable to literally mm-hmm. everyone. Um, and that's a very good way to have a base level of like, this is a relatable character because you can watch them struggle. It's not enough to be granted that title of a chosen one. I think the chosen one also has to grapple with it and understand how to control their abilities, which Anse has always been really good at showing Siri growing into that. Like, it's always been her guardian's goal to get her to be able to control her powers. That's why Geralt was training her at Karamoran. 
That's why Triss was attempting to train her. That's why Yennefer actually trained her in magic. Um, so everything she's been trained for has built up to this. So it feels very earned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a, a good example, a, a, a good example of that would be like the first Matrix movie. Um, there, there's a ton of like training and like um, because Neo, who is literally described as the chosen one, like I know Kung Fu. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He has a little bit of that, but there's still a lot of like training and like learning that he has to do in order to become good at the things. Too bad they never made any sequels after the first one. Yeah, we don't acknowledge those. <laughs> you you shut your mouth. So, John Mark, uh, do you want the red pill or the blue pill? Uh, how about both? Let's, let's both at the same time. <laughs> let's All right. ride this snake. <laughs> See where the wheels fall off. All right, sounds like we need a drink then. <laughs> I think it does. So tonight, however, before we drink this, I have to get some pictures um, because this label is absolutely gorgeous. Um, ironically, it's so okay. The label on this. So tonight we're drinking uh, Rabble, uh, which is a red wine from Paso Robales uh, because we're boring and don't uh, venture outside of Paso Robales anymore. Um, but we found a place we like and we stick <laughs> to it. Not really. I mean, that wasn't the intent, at least. Um, but uh, we've just been finding a lot of ones that work really well. Um, so it is vented and bottled by the Rabble Wine Company in Paso Robles, California. <laughs> um, if there's anything we've learned, it's that most wine names and wineries are one and the same. Uh, yeah, actually, at least for like non-local wines. Um, there's a lot of local wines that you, you find more variety than just the one that is named that. But there's a lot of wineries that just that just name their wine after themselves. Um, oh, the the catchphrase on the back is, we cannot command nature except by obeying her. Experience the rabble. Um, <laughs> it is fruit harvested from carefully selected vineyards in, the Pas- in Paso Robales. Um, the rebellious wine appeared in October of the year 2019. Okay, I don't know what that means, um, but the reason I was I was the reason I grabbed this was because um, it has this really really gorgeous etching on the front of it of like a meteorite um, exploding in the sky over a town, and it um, like it's destroying the town, but it's this really gorgeous like watercolor like etching, um, yeah, and it's very really beautiful, really well done, especially for like such a horrific depiction of like a town being destroyed. Um, but it really fit like, like there was a meteor and there's a town being destroyed and multiple towns being destroyed. It really brought to mind some of the places that Siri visited during yes. this chapter. <laughs> yes, it absolutely did. Um, and then like we talk constantly about there being a comet in the sky. Um, oh, so uh, difference between a comet and a meteor, a meteor enters the earth's atmosphere um, mm. and, usually falls to the falls to the planet or falls and lands on the surface a comet never comes near the uh, the earth's atmosphere so the comet just keeps like going forever yes yes well, i mean you know until it uh, melts or disappears into dust but um it never they never enter the earth's atmosphere at least so they just fly by yeah yep generally um so yeah like i said i'm gonna have to take a picture of this uh and maybe we'll post it on instagram 
Maybe. Okay. <laughs> so, for as fancy as I made out this wine to be, it is, of course, a twist-off cap. The dreaded twist-off mm-hmm. cap. Mm-hmm. So, no cork tonight, no cork sounds, no chance of me spilling wine all over my pants again. But I'm, mm-hmm. I'm okay with that last one. So, um, let's give this an open and, and we'll see how it is. Now, that's the sound of quality. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but realistically, like the the cap versus the cork doesn't really matter too much anymore. But only in our minds. Yeah, only in our minds. Oh wow! Ooh, it smells so familiar, but I can't really place what it is. Yeah, um, it's a lot of minerally terroir that you can actually smell. Which is kind of wild. I think it's got a lot of diacetyls in it. It might. It might. It, it might, actually. Strong fruit. Yeah, yeah, the, the fruit is definitely in there. Now, it didn't say what this was a blend of, but it is a red blend. Hmm. And this is a California wine? That is correct. It is a Paso Robales, California one. Sorry if I if that wasn't clear. I get some licorice in addition to like the buttery notes. Yeah, that is what it that is what it is. It's licorice, isn't it? I get like both licorice and like a buttery note. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is it, isn't it? And like some cherry or currants. Yeah, yeah. The the standard red wine, red fruits. Mm. <laughs> Shall we give it a taste, though? I think I think the only way we're going to really figure this one out is by tasting it. There's, and I there's feel not like I'm lot. often just wrong, like how it smells and how it tastes. Well, like I are mean, two different things. The the aromatic bouquet should be different than the actual flavor palette. In all honesty, in most wines. Um, oh, also, I would like to say that this wine. Uh, we'll we'll get there maybe with the rating. We'll see. <laughs> All right, well, should we taste it? I think we should actually, in fact, taste it. So, uh, cheers. Cheers. You are 100% on the money with the with the licorice. That is, like, all I got on the front end. It's um, very dense. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the back end, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of the, the terroir mineraliness that you kind of love in the, in the California wines. Usually, like, I don't like very strong licorice profiles in wine. Yeah. But this is not. It's like a little bit of a bite. Yeah. Yeah. That That's a good way to describe it. It's just, it's a very subtle lick. It's more like uh, anise in like, um, in like a, a pasta dish or something like that. It's not a strong licorice flavor. But it is the primary, I would say it is the primary flavor in here. But which is like, pretty unique, actually. This is probably like my second favorite wine we've ever had on the podcast really really um it's just like very um like to me i really like dense wines it reminds me of born of fire which has been like my number one Mm -hmm. throughout um because that was the one that we did at the beginning of um i believe it was blood of elves Mm -hmm. which was the first book of the saga if you can even believe it um, I really liked it because it was dense. It had a lot of diacetyls. It had a lot of complexity. And this sort of is the same for me. I'm not getting a lot of diacetyls, but it's got that same complexity too. 
Um, but it's also got a really nice smoothness to it. Um, that it, it's very, it's still very approachable. Um, this wine would age really well. Um, so it's from 2019. So it's only a year and a half ish old, I would say. Um, so yeah, I, I, I really feel like I might have to try and find another bottle of this. <laughs> um, and then we'll just put it in the basement or something and try to forget about it. Yeah. Keyword being try. I think this could also open up interestingly. Like I feel like yeah. when it oxidizes a little bit, it'll probably be different flavors will come out. This this would be one. So uh, for anyone who's never done it before, you can get this thing. Um, we call it a wine squeaker um, because it squeaks when you run it. Um, but it it um, it has it's a little like funnel basically uh, that you run you run wine through it and it has a little hole in the side yep. and it uses the Bernoulli effect um, and it aerates the wine. It's a wine aerator. Um, it aerates, it, 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 it sucks air into the wine while the wine is passing by it. Um, so the Bernoulli effect is that when there is a, a flow of, of liquid down, uh, there's a suction that occurs uh, very closely right next to the laminar flow of the, of the fluid. Um, it, creating a, a suction effect. Um, so when you when you make a hole in a funnel in the side of a funnel, um, it sucks air into it. Um, this is fantastic for aerating wine, um, and I think it causes o- rapid oxidation when you do it like that, and it opens the wine up a little bit more, and you can get some more flavor profiles out of it. This definitely would be an interesting one, I think, to to run through that. Maybe we might have to do that off air later, but. Yeah, I really like this. It, it's very um, complex. Mm-hmm. Um, has a lot of depth to it. Feels very meaty. <laughs> I feel like meaty is a pretty good word for it. Actually, it's 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 kind of yeah. Um, got a lot of body. Yeah, I don't know that the, this would probably pair pretty well. It's corpulent, as uh, Anse <laughs> described the uh, innkeeper, which he he was that really was a- dead set on calling this innkeeper fat and i just want to say yes the innkeeper is perfect the way she is he he didn't call her fat he just used a whole lot of like um like synonyms for like fat <laughs> <laughs> he used a lot of synonyms for fat portly like. um i don't know he never i don't think he ever said portly he just like kept using words that referred to just having large mass i like corpulent because like i feel like it's just like you got a lot of body yes (laughs) and and that's kind of like the way i picture it is she's probably just like she's probably built you know what i mean like she probably hauls the kegs up into the bar herself Mm -hmm. kind of thing like she's she's probably put in some work you know what i mean and so like she's she's she she's an innkeeper who manages manages it herself um, she's, she's a probably strong, independent exactly. who doesn't need any man. She's probably broken up a couple fights herself, but maybe she doesn't really need to because it's probably Paris in the 1920s. So it's probably not super like rowdy and violent, but I don't think it's Paris, but I feel like it's close by. Well, yeah, I was going to say the, the real Le Chat Noir was supposed to be Paris in the early 1900s, but, um, I don't know. I, I, I suspect there's been multiple throughout history. So I don't know if that's where it was supposed to be, but. Well, that was a tangent. Um, yes, it was. <laughs> Shall we move into our, our last call, Saved Rounds Alibis? Yes. Yes? Okay. Well, 
we did a lot of traveling to some good places and bad places. And we already talked a lot about how Siri uses her power. Um, but I guess like, what are your feelings on the progression of how she uses her power throughout this chapter? Because I think we see like a lot of development and growth. Yeah. I mean, like this is kind of like, I feel like this is series like trip to the monastery, if that makes sense. Um, trip to the monastery like in how yennefer no um in it's a really common trope in like kung fu movies or oh. like um superhero movies where like they spend a year the main character will like take a trip to a remote monastery and work with monks um and learn their special secret kung fu sauce um like their special secret technique and like they spend like a year in that time and but because all they're doing is dedicating, you know, their their every single hour of every single day to developing this one particular skill, they get very good at it very quick. Right. Um, so it's so, like in Batman Begins. Like, is that where- that is exactly that? That's one of the probably the key superhero movies that does that. Um, where like, yeah, it, it, he he spends time with Ra's al Ghul, um, who trains him in ninjutsu <clears throat> i hate that term um because it's so watered down and like there's something that that's a whole other tangent i won't get into right now um but yeah like he's you, you the main character spends like an into a whole block of time working on this one specific skill imagine if you literally locked yourself in a room with nothing but like a pencil and some paper and you really wanted to learn how to draw uh, a tree. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But so for like a year, you did not leave this room and you just drew trees. Imagine at the end of that year, how your, what your skill level would be in drawing trees. Yeah, you'd be like the best. You would be the best fucking tree drawer (laughs) in existence, Um, and it's it's that idea that like she is literally like in a in a time travel tube um, that the only thing that she can do and will do for um, I'm assuming it's probably like a a couple of weeks that she's been doing this. Um, We don't really see her sleeping or anything, so there's not really time is relative. Um, So. There's a very kind of important concept that really does need to be uh, cemented here in terms of time. And I think I've mentioned this on a previous episode somewhere where where like relative time is an important concept. Um, Einstein had a very famous example of this where you have a the idea is that you have a someone fires a bullet out of a gun down the corridor of a train car. If the train car is moving sufficiently fast enough um, that it catches up with the bullet in flight, the bullet and the train car will appear to be moving at the same speed relative to each other. Okay. If they're not, however, the bullet will be moving at a speed relative to itself. Okay. If that makes sense. So if if you take... If you have someone fire a gun and you're standing stationary, um, the bullet fi- flies past you in a very quick manner. 
However, if you are now suddenly traveling at the same speed as that bullet, you are moving in relative speed with the bullet, and it, sh- it would appear to be standing still. Right. So the idea being that the time that is progressing for Siri is completely independent of the time that's progressing everywhere else around her. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Did I explain that well? I think so. Okay. <laughs> because I may not have. There's a lot of <laughs> and mind I apologize. bending that it's a needs little, to take place for like any it, explanation of time travel. Yes, it's it's a little it's a little mind bendy, but the idea being that like Siri in her time is still moving linear, linearly for her as she is experiencing it. Think about more her aging. She mm-hmm. has now aged roughly like one week. Because one week has passed for her. So Siri is the bullet. Yes. Yes. That and is And the train is time. The, yes. The train <laughs> the train is where she it where everything is around her. So the train is the harbor that she ends up with at the Black Death. Mm-hmm. Um, the train is the French cafe. The train is the city that's being destroyed. Um, and it's her slowing down and stopping at that point, and she then moves relative to the train. Um, but then she keeps going again and is no longer moving in relative speed with the train. Right. But time is still moving linearly for that bullet from when it was fired. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay. Uh, yeah. Did it? No, no, it does. <laughs> oh, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. No, I I totally get it. And I could literally see the light bulb. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get like excited about that. But <laughs> No, no, it's very interesting because I feel like even though I've read this before, mm-hmm. like a light bulb went off in my head like because i think we're just so used to experiencing time linearly yes um it's hard for us to think about like time not being like just this straight line mm-hmm. like moving forward and so like when i thought about the snake uroboros i was like yeah that makes sense like time is a snake eating its own tail like totally but like in my head for like nemuan con weirmers i was like well, it's already the future. So everything that has happened, like, you know, everything that, you know, needs to happen has happened. Mm-hmm. But not really because for Siri, because she's the bullet, she's yes. just moving around according to her own rules. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, like, really, time isn't settled. Yes. Because <laughs> she is still out there moving around. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Sorry. I don't mean to get really excited there. Um, no, but it's like it's very weird to think about like when you're used to experiencing time one way and then mm-hmm. you have to look at it completely differently and you're like, okay, well, what we think of as time is not exactly accurate as to this timeline. Yes, yes, that is completely correct. Um, and now that everyone is thoroughly confused, <laughs> we can move forward. Um, yes. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, like, we from a scientific understanding are still completely limited and hamstrung in all of this and all of this is theoretical conjecture um so yeah i mean anse is kind of just working on the general working principle or the general working ideas of how time functions um but it makes sense because like in every time there is like remnants of the past mm-hmm. present and future yep. like even right now as we're talking, you know, it's, we're moving forward. Yes, so yes. even the present isn't the present anymore, you know? So it's... The the present only exists in the precise exact moment that it is currently. Yeah. 
even in just the the moment that I uttered that phrase, it, that phrase is now already in the past. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's really weird to think about, mm-hmm. but it's a fun concept. I feel like time travel is always really interesting because we get to turn things on their head a little bit and we're like, oh, like, okay, this can exist while this also exists. And like, we have to sort of figure it out. <laughs> so one of my favorite depictions of time travel in fiction is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, I don't know that I've actually talked about it too much on on the, this show before, um, but it comes in it comes into play a, a good bit here um, because basically, like in the later books, um, the the main character starts traveling through time, um, and basically a lot of it is just kind of explained as just like don't really think about it too hard, don't worry mm-hmm. about it. <laughs> like um, uh, there, there's a really good explanation of like okay. Slight tangent here for like time travel is like literary idea and like paradoxes that it can create, et cetera, et cetera. The classic idea is that if you go back in time, kill your grandfather, then you would never have existed to go back in time to kill your grandfather to then have never existed to go back in time to kill your grandfather, which means that your grandfather would have existed, which means that you would exist to go back in time and kill your grandfather, which means that you wouldn't exist, which means that, yeah. And it, it creates an infinite loop of, of logical paradox. Um, basically like there's an entire scene in, in one of the later books where they address literally that paradox and, and the idea, like the explanation was like, if you were meant to go, if you went back in time and killed your grandfather, that means that you were meant to go back in time and kill your grandfather and don't worry about it too much. That was what was supposed to happen. Mm. Nothing. There will be no paradoxes. <laughs> time does not implode on itself kind yes. of thing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> You're yes. just like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of think there's a little bit of that here in, yeah. in kind of just like a, we're not going to play with it a little too much. And I think the, the plague thing was a really good example of that where it was just kind of like we've heard references to it in the past, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now like it's kind of come full circle a little bit in that like this is where it got started. Um, yeah. And, and I, it's a little bit of like the butterfly effect like mm-hmm. to reference a really bad movie that I've never so, seen actually. You've never seen it? I haven't. But okay. the idea of the butterfly effect is that a butterfly flapping its wings can have it can cause a hurricane like on the other across side of the, the world. world. Yep, yep. Like so the smallest little things can have ripple effects. Um Life is Strange plays with this a lot, which if you like Fantastic video, video games, game. if you yep. like story driven video games, you love Life is Strange. But the idea is that like small little actions have big repercussions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that is what Anze is playing with, with Siri going back in a time, encountering the bubonic plague, carrying a flea with her and setting off a chain of events in Nilfgaard. So I would also like to point out that I love that this is like a barely a footnote in the entire story. It's just like, like a little yeah, yeah. throwaway detail. This is a throwaway gag, basically. Um, but like, there are writers that this would be, like there are plots and books that this would be the entire concept of the story. Um, but instead, like, this is just like a side note and a mechanism to deliver the story, which is awesome. Like, <laughs> I kind of love it. Um, yeah. Sorry, that was <laughs> that was kind of where I was going with that. 
I also love in series time traveling, like we get, you know, bigger anecdotes in some places, in some places, and in some places we just like gloss over it because we don't have enough time to go into every place she's visited. Yeah. Yep. But it is interesting to see like commonalities, like when she's traveling, like when she was going to that big you know the city that's on fire i was Mm -hmm. thinking like san francisco (laughs) like chicago i I was thinking (laughs) you know of the great fires in the united states i'm pretty sure that anyone in the world could think of a city a city that that has has been on fire at some point and like it it is sort of relatable because we're like oh did siri visit like earth like was that something that Mm -hmm. we know of and like i think that's what's so fun about this time travel stuff is that we're like well maybe she's here maybe this is like a common you know because she's able to travel through time she's able to experience things that Mm -hmm. we can be like oh i recognize that and and we would think that they were completely independent events based on our own lens that we apply to history Mm -hmm. but yet he's kind of illustrating that they're very common themes throughout um which is a fantastic transition into talking about the elephant in the room that I wanted to address. Okay, what's the elephant in the room? The elephant in the room being the sexual assault that occurs in this oh, gosh. in this chapter. Um, so I may um, this this may be this section may be a little triggering. We're gonna try not to talk about the gritty details. We're just talking on the, about the big picture. Yeah, right? I, w- I want to talk about the theory of it. Um, so. I really, I've been, I was kind of racking my brain as to why Anse has depicted so much assault on Siri. Um, because realistically, for character building, we kind of already saw it. Like, it doesn't need to happen anymore. Um, so I was kind of trying to wrap my head around it. And I realized we know that Anse, okay. I'm also going to say all of these things from a heterosexual white male perspective. So mm-hmm. this is the lens that I know, and I apologize if I'm getting things wrong, but this is what I'm going to speak from. Um, we know that Anse is a good feminist. Mm-hmm. We know this. I think he's trying to illustrate that one of the common themes throughout history is subjugation of women. And that very often they end up being the primary victims in a lot of horrific points in history. And I think that's kind of what he's trying to illustrate with the recurring assaults against Siri, that these are recurring themes that constantly happen throughout all of human history. I, yeah. I think that's very true, but I think it's also true that like Anse's perspective, and we've seen this throughout his storytelling in The Witcher, I think his perspective is that, to quote Thomas Hobbes, um, Mm -hmm. a very famous philosopher, life is nasty, brutish, and short. Mm. Um, So the idea that like most people are pretty bad intentions Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. the idea that humanity when left to its own devices kind of has bad intentions and does bad things and like i feel like that it's probably flavored a little bit by his catholic upbringing Mm, mm -hmm. um because i (laughs) feel like 
I mean, this is this is me speaking as someone who's been exposed to a lot of different variations of Christianity. Mm-hmm. But from my observations growing up, you know, I was always told the world is sinful, the world is wicked. Um, and like, it's true. Like, I, I'd like to believe that most people are good or have good intentions rather than bad intentions. But I think our worldview that we're brought up with is like, the world out there is really sinful mm-hmm. and it's chaos. And so like, you know, I think that's what's being imparted through this storytelling. I don't know if you agree. I actually, I was going to kind of reflect on that a little bit uh, in that um, one of the things too that I've noticed is a very heavy theme is that whenever these incidences occur, um, there are always times that occur outside of any sort of law. Mm. Um, And I don't mean law literally in like, oh, the police are right there. And you know, I mean like any sort of like, literal outside body they always occur in places where there's literally no one else to step in kind of thing and it it, Mm -hmm. i think that's done intentionally to illustrate the point as to like what happens frequently when people are given free reign to do as they please um and through like a lot of a lot of human history a lot of human history is literal like chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean that in like an organizational societal standpoint that most of human history is very societally chaotic. Um, you look at like a, a good, you know, I, I, you kind of reflect a little bit on like feudal England. Um, and you think about the fact that like literally, unless you did something right in front of like the town bailiff, there wouldn't be any any repercussions necessarily. Um, so there's so many incidences of like people acting outside of the law, quote unquote. Um, and I think that's kind of like he's kind of trying to show this is what happens when people are given free reign to do whatever they want. Um, and it's not necessarily that they are the most powerful person in existence, but like there's no one to check them. So, like, uh, uh, Forrest Gramps is a good example of this, that, like, he's lived out in the woods, obviously completely removed from any other, like, human influence ever. Um, So there's no... It's not even a governing body. There's not even, like, another person to step in and intervene. Yeah. Um, And I think there's another point there that, you know even though Syria is crossing these boundaries of time, bad people and bad things exist everywhere. Yes. Like, yes. And, and it is a pessimistic view of like reality. Um, but I think that it is realistic. I, yes. I guess. Yes. Uh, the other thing I was kind of curious about that sort of like an unsolved question for me is like Forrest Gramps doesn't seem that confused by time travel. Like when Siri is like trying to explain like, you know, yeah, like he he guesses like, oh yeah, you were traveling through time and space. Like Forrest Gramps knows everything. It's like, why does Forrest Gramps know that? Like, so, has this happened before? Is that where he's getting all of his I... like children? Actually, yeah, that was one of my questions because obviously Forrest Gramps doesn't live near anything. Um, But yeah, like 
I really didn't want to bring up the comparison here, especially after I brought it up while we were reading. But when I when we first started reading, I I can tell exactly where Anse got the inspiration for Forrest Gramps. Um, it's very very clearly inspired by Tom Bombadil from, from Lord, Lord of the, of the Rings, Rings. Uh, which is a section a uh, section of the book that is completely removed from any of the uh, well at least the Peter Jackson depictions of the of the of the books. Um, but there is a character that the party encounters at some point um, very early in the first book named Tom Bombadil. He saves the party um, from a company of trees uh, that is trying to kill them um, because he can speak to the trees and command them. So he's the Lorax? Hang on. <laughs> um, he also knows who they are where they're going. Uh, he references to have known Gandalf for like thousands of years. Um, at one point he takes the ring from Frodo, puts it on, is completely unaffected by it, takes it off, hands it back to him. Um, and then just doesn't explain anything. He takes, he takes the party back to the, to his cabin, um, gives them food. Oh, he also sings the entire time. He doesn't talk. He sings, um, he gives the entire party food, points them in a correct direction, and off they go. And that is the end of Tom Bombadil. And mm-hmm. he is never mentioned ever again. There is no reference to him anywhere. He is literally just this anomaly. <laughs> so, very clearly, Forrest Gramps was was definitely inspired by Tom Bombadil. Um, but uh, Anse got a little... Um, Rob Zombie-ish, a little like Hills Have Eyes-ish um, with like a little Texas Chainsaw Massacre thrown in there um, with with this this inspiration, um, which is why I don't really even like to, because Tom Bombadil is a lot of fun in Lord of the Rings. Forrest Gramps was not fun. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird because I, I try to I'm trying to like understand the meaning of it and and maybe there's no easy answer to this. But I think maybe it was a little bit of a like catharsis because Siri has gone through so many things. Mm. Like for her to be able to burn everything down. Yeah, that, that like, probably was part of it. Is like, you know, she's been a victim so much and, you know, she's at this point where I feel like every survivor of trauma gets to this point, hopefully, where they are able to, um, you know, get get out from under it and survive. And Siri is nothing if not a survivor. And while I am an adamant um, opposer of using sexual assault to build, you know, character, I feel like Siri is finally able to take control of her own narrative and we see that she um is able to fend off people that would do her harm i think that might uh, you you raise a very solid and serious point that this is the first time we have seen her be able to take revenge on someone who has who has like wronged her in all honesty we really actually haven't seen her be able to do that yet well she Um, has had like series of revenges. I mean, mm. like her skating on ice. That's and, true. And killing That's true. Her attackers. I, I, I did forget about that. But um, I, I feel like 
maybe it's part of her just like leaving the past in the past, like setting fire to all of the, you know, the people that have wronged her. I feel like it is a moment at least like fire. I feel like setting things on fire and burning things is like it's metaphorically cleansing. It's cleansing. Mm. And like, while I don't think this had to happen, um, I think it is nice that like, you know, it didn't go further. And I feel like it's nice that Siri's able to avenge people that, mm. Um, we're on the wrong side of Forrest Gramps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that I'm glad that Forrest Gramps was decommissioned at the end of this. And yeah, that yes. he's, uh, you know, he's no gone more. for good. Yep. Um, I think also one of the, one of the, the, the intents where Ansai, the intents that Ansai was trying to, to point out here was kind of like sometimes the horribleness of chance encounters. Um, that mm-hmm. like it, Siri just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time to yeah. experience this. Maybe Forrest Gramps is like a time spider, like mm. you kind of mentioned, um, which is kind of a cool concept and might be a slight inspiration for a short story here. Um, but like the idea that like maybe maybe he catches time travelers and like maybe it's a semi, it, it may be a, a common enough thing at some point in time that he has made uh, an existence just like catching time travelers and then eating them. Yeah, um, like, and I feel like it also speaks to ecology because there's always a predator that evolves to, um, you know, capitalize, on, capitalize on, on a opportunity. niche. Yes, on um, an opportunity. So I feel like that might also be inspired by that. Um, so I feel like there are a lot of reasons for Forrest Gramps to exist, even though he makes us uncomfortable. Um, but I'm glad at the at the end of it, Siri got the upper hand and he's wiped off the face of the earth. Or whatever, wherever he is. I don't I don't know. There yeah, are many yeah. worlds yeah. referenced here. <laughs> well, let's move on a little bit to something a little bit more fun. So I loved Nemu and Conduirimer's arc. Oh my god, this in this chapter. chapter? Like they're so much fun. We got to know like Honestly, I don't know if this is a, a good read, but I feel like Nimue and Conweirmers are like a fun, like fun drunk ants. Like, yes. Which I absolutely <laughs> get drunk ant energy from both of them. And I don't know why. I don't know why either. <laughs> it's just like it's really apparent to me in this chapter, like when mm-hmm. they're just sitting on the terrace and watching the sunset. I know it's not described that they have wine, but in my mind they do. Oh God, yes, they have the big like g- the big wine glasses that hold half a bottle of wine. Like, <laughs> yeah, and they just like t- like two hand it like up. The, yeah, <laughs> like that. They definitely have strong wine mom energy, as we we have explained what a wine mom is. Yes, yeah. uh, for our non-American listeners, but but, but they are wine ants. Yes, um, <laughs> and like I just really like that we learned more about Nemu's backstory, why she's so invested in. The story. Good for her, and I get it. I yes, yes, and and I just really like that she saw a Siri. It's played for comedic effect yeah. because she's getting busy at the time, and how Siri says, "Like I see that it's the wrong time, and worse than that, a bad time." So bye. And then, like, Namu is scarred for life, like because she missed this opportunity, like to experience like the real version of her childhood, like uh, hero. So I'm going to tell a little bit of a personal story that I've taken some details out of, but like, this is kind of like one of the, I, I, the, I like it, it, it relates to this story pretty well. 
Um, I happen to have the wonderful experience of like um, being in a car with someone who ended up ultimately being a, a boss of mine. Um, and that person got very motion sick on the car ride um, and had to step out and vomit all over the sidewalk due to the motion sickness. Um, that person later on became my boss. <laughs> There's a lot of like breaking down of barriers <laughs> In that yeah. moment. <laughs> and like, there's a lot of like trust that is immediately established. And I, I really hope if that person ever hear, Oh, for whatever reason, I don't think they listen to our podcast, but for whatever reason, I hope they're not upset. I don't think they would be, but they know they would know who they are. <laughs> um, and I'm sorry for telling this story, but I think it's, I think I've obscured enough information. Um, but there's a lot of like immediate inherent trust that is then built in mm-hmm. that seeing this person in this very vulnerable moment. Yeah. Um, and I think it's kind of the same thing that happens with Siri and Namu in this moment <laughs> is that like she literally walks in on like them like getting busy on the beach <laughs> and she's just kind of like, oh, OK, <laughs> like, like it, there, there's a lot of like trust that's also established when you can outline the moles on someone's back like and just describe how that they've moved over the years um yeah like and and i wonder that's what that if that's why siri trusts if that's why siri trusted nimu so much because i, she I was like, like to think it is i've seen you at a vulnerable moment yes. <laughs> like i know you wouldn't steer me wrong yeah um and it's also funny because it speaks back to your bullet analogy like mm-hmm. you know for nimu this has been many many this has years. been literal decades um yes. like maybe even 100 years mm-hmm. like for siri this has been maybe some days like, like a day and a half yes and so like i i find it really funny that for nimu this is like seeing a comet twice basically yeah like yeah. we're seeing Haley's comet twice yeah twice in a lifetime which does happen for some people in very very rare occasion that's a really good analogy and i love that like thank you for making that because that is a fantastic connection and there's a ton of fucking metaphor in that and anse definitely put it in intentionally yeah the um, comet's there for a reason yeah oh yeah i mean like yeah obviously but i never drew that connection that like there are some people in the world who have seen Haley's Comet twice. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to be born in very specific and perfect circumstances that like they see it when they're like six and remember it and then happen to see it when they're like 95. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's a very rare thing. It's like lightning striking twice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it is really fun that Namu got to like fulfill that life. Mm-hmm desire that life mission of guiding Siri to the right place at the right time um but unknown to Siri she actually was at the right place and right time two multiple times (laughs) multiple times the first time was when she thought about going to Vizima and she ended up with the astronomer who could not tell her what time and place it was but we know that this was the right place in the right time because he was observing the red-tailed comet that was appearing at the same time Yare Mm -hmm, was going mm -hmm. to Zima. Um, And the other time was when she traveled to Geralt's and she traveled to the middle of a blizzard Mm -hmm. and she just missed him. It was like, (laughs) it was so close. It was like... Okay, so if you've ever been in like a real whiteout blizzard... Um, I kind of also love that little analogy because like 
I have literally been in blizzards. Okay, the, the town I went to college in, um, three years before I got there, um, got 11 feet of snowfall in one storm. I can't even fathom that. Um, it, it set a world record for most snowfall in like one storm. Um, it was very well known for lots and lots of snow. Um, there was at least one blizzard that I remember that I could not see literally across the street. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't see the other side, like four feet away because it was snowing so hard. Um, for reference, uh, the, the college didn't cancel any classes and the city buses were still running. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, that's neither here nor there. That's a different conversation. But, um, so like, I really love the idea of like them being in a blizzard. That's that <laughs> strong yeah. that like they're five feet away from each other and they can't see or hear each other. It is like really realistic because like, you know, of course, Siri, who has traveled to so many incorrect places, so many incorrect times is like, oh, this is another like wrong place, wrong time. Of course, it's it's that level. So that level of isolation that you get in that kind of a blizzard is a really good metaphor for Siri's like experience in traveling through time, too. And that like there's just so much noise occurring outside of her that like it's almost impossible to see or hear someone five feet away. Yeah. And like for Geralt, when he sees those tracks in the snow and everyone's bewildered by it, he's like, let's follow it because he feels that twinge because he's connected to her by destiny. Mm. He's like, we've got to go. And then like, he kind of second guesses himself. He's like, maybe I didn't feel that. Never second guess yourself. (laughs) I feel like everyone second guesses themselves and it leads to this misconnection. Um, But it's just like one of those like, oh, so close. Like they could have reunited, but no. It feels a little bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it really does. Like, but it, it's it's good writing, in all honesty. We, you know, you're very engaged because of it. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Siri's dream that she has when she mm-hmm. um, reaches the French um, tavern, mm-hmm. Le Chat Noir, and um, she has that dream because she's finally in a safe place, and she sees Yare. So, she, so we know that she's seeing things that are actually happening. And then she sees, like, sort of, um, as dreams tend to be, she sees, like, something she remembers about Yennefer. So she remembers traveling to Gore's Velen with Yennefer, and Yennefer using that spell to comb her hair and suspend the mirror in front of her. So we Mm. see that, but we also see that Yennefer is using this because her hands are bloody stumps. Yep. So we realize that Ciri is seeing her as she currently is Mm, after being mm -hmm. tortured by Vilgefortz. So I thought that was just very interesting that Siri is seeing these like snippets of reality in the midst of her memories. Um, so what were your thoughts on her dream? Um, I always really, I always really like when Anse includes the dream sequences uh, because, and I've, I've gotten much better at recognizing them more quickly mm-hmm. um, because he always switches to a really good stream of consciousness narration um, and it's, it's very, very drastically different from his narration style in the rest of the book. Um, and I really also did love series dreams because they were both literal and metaphoric. Um, I kind of got the idea that like uh, Yari, she saw Yari kicking over the jars with red liquid in them as a metaphor for Yari killing. Mm. Um, 
and literally like the person that he's with asks him like aren't you not allowed to do that because you're a priest and like he responds with what he was saying in the last chapter that like you have to spill blood when you know the motherland calls kind of thing um and so i got the the jars were literally like metaphors for people that he was killing um i don't know if that's actually happening but i mean based on this that's kind of what it seems like um it's a relatively easy metaphor to kind of pick up on um but i think it it kind of maybe very subtly might be something that we might unconsciously notice that might carry on to a later chapter yeah like i feel like we're getting all these snippets for a reason mm. oh, and yeah, like definitely. it definitely does build up to siri you know being motivated to go on like i've got to save my mom i've got to save yeah, jennifer yep. like that's really her takeaway and so that's why she you know gets up and she's like all right like i've got to keep going i've yeah. got to go find yep. my friend so it's all the better when she comes across Nemu and Confirmers and they're able to direct her to the right place at the right time yeah, finally. Yep. It it is like you said, it is it is a really good reminder for what her motivation is because we do kind of lose that in this chapter. Um because it is kind of just fun adventures with in time with Siri. Um and so like you kinda like, yeah, I could do this for a while. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, let's see where this goes. But like you kind of forget that, oh, yeah, no, her ultimate goal is that she's trying to save the people that she cares about. So, yeah, we get that reminder and that grounding, which we, we kind of glossed over. But there are real stakes to her time traveling because, um, well, two things here. The Red Riders do catch up with Siri um, as she's going across time and space. Like she kind of thinks she's going to outrun them, mm. but they can track her. Yes, and so we get her, them confronting her and, you know, Aridin is sort of this this person that's constantly telling her, I think he even tells her in his dream, like, mm, mm-hmm. the people that you love are dead. Yeah. Like, your friends and family are dead. And so, like, Aridin is sort of like this, um, you know, this constant person who's following her and trying to, like, vanquish her he, quest. He did have a little bit of dialogue in that scene where he shows up at the at the seashore mm-hmm. um in which she sells Siri sells seashells by the seashore. Um but uh he he did have a little bit of dialogue that I thought was kind of interesting where he basically says like you know that you're you know that you want me. You know that I've, I think that I've was always been in the dream been... sequence actually. Oh, it, oh was it in yeah, the dream that was sequence? In the dream sequence. Okay. Yeah. I I didn't really note it cuz it wasn't super important to the plot, but like it it did add some interesting character flavor. Mm-hmm. Um also because of the fact that it could be either uh Aridin magically projecting himself into her dream, which may be a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be Ciri's subconscious interpreting Aridin's motivations, which both of which are very interesting possibilities, um, because that would be her perception of him. Um, and if he is that, you know, cocksure that like, oh, yeah, she definitely wants me because she knows that I'm really the, the real man of the of the the elves who, you know, she should sire children with or yeah, it, and like that might be her interpretation of his motivations, which probably are actually his motivations. Well, I do also feel like Siri um, has experienced people wanting to use her for so many different things that I think that's what she's accustomed to. Yeah. Like yep. everyone wants to utilize her because she's a chosen one. 
And so I feel like that does represent a real fear. And plus, he's chasing after her. So, of course, she feels that way. Yeah. Yep. Um, but my other question is, like, what? Where is Little Horse? Is he okay? I, I really hope we get some kind of resolution from Little Horse. I really do. Anse is very good at tying up loose ends. And I'm assuming we're probably going to see something at some point. And I'm hoping it's good. But I don't know. I really don't know. I really want him to be okay. Probably more than I probably should care for like a three-chapter unicorn who shows up, you know, kind of periodically. Well, I guess we'll see. What do we think is going to happen next? What are your predictions for the ultimate showdown? Of Ultimate Destiny? Um, so let me just give you a little hint. Okay. okay. Um, because I love to just, you know, mm. give little clues here and there. Chapter eight will not be about this. Chapter eight is going to be back to the war, which I know is everyone's favorite topic. Okay. Um, so we got to figure out what happened with the, the war between the North and Nilfgaard. So don't get too excited just yet. But chapter nine mm. will. Okay be the ultimate showdown okay that makes sense because there's only like three chapters after that point so okay all right that fits i mean yeah i i I have a sneaking suspicion we might see a little bit more of that plague um but maybe not i don't maybe that might be a thing that happened way in the past we don't actually know where that was relative Mm. into the timeline um we know that that's a that that ship name is something that has come up in the past before but not by not a lot so, like, it's been mentioned casually, but I don't know if that's that's a thing that happened in the past or if it's a thing that might happen in the future. So, we'll see. Maybe I, I may also be remembering it from the video game. So, so, what do you think the ultimate showdown will look like? I'm really not sure. Um, because I think... So, I suspect that Ciri's going to con- confront Volgaforts. Um... And I think that's going to be interesting. I don't think that they're evenly matched. Um, I think Volgaforts is currently much more powerful than her, but I suspect that Siri might be a little bit more clever than he is. Hmm. Don't say that too loud. Um, but I think he. I think that might be the case. So I think we might see some. We might see her pull a sneaky, and like do something. <laughs> um, but that also doesn't necessarily tie up the loose ends with Aridin, Um, which uh, I guess spoiler at this point, but most people who are with us have probably figured it out. Um, that's kind of where the video game picks up. Um, yeah, like, so there are quite a few villains still on the board. Yes, like, <laughs> yes, there are. So There's quite a few. We've got a lot of loose ends to tie up. Yeah, Bonart's still out there somewhere. Um, we know he's connected with Vilgaforts in the past. Yeah, so, yep. Um, he did try to assault Yennefer, so we know he's still out there, still doing his bad boy shit. Um, or maybe not bad boy shit, but villain shit. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess we'll just have to see what happens in the next few chapters. But um, next chapter, war. Aren't you excited to figure out what happens next? Alexa... What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Huh. Ha! Hoo-ah. Well, I'm, I'm not super excited. I'm hoping it'll be a fun chapter. 
I think it will be maybe depending on what happens, but we'll see. With that, though, I think the fire's getting a little low. And I think now that we helped uh, Siri navigate through time as the great lighthouse, I think we need to figure out what to do with our lives. Um, maybe take up magical cross stitch. Cross stitch? Yeah. We got to remake that tapestry somehow. True. Mm. It did burn up and it was the only depiction of Vogelforth's castle. So, But he might be cool with that. Don't, don't mention him too loud though. So, We'll have to see him in the next few chapters. I'm, I have a feeling we're going to see a lot of them in the next couple of chapters. i got to prepare myself. Well, stay calm and be sure when you navigate through time that you're doing it responsibly. Mm-hmm. Always wear a condom. I don't think that's what that advice is for, but sure. I, I mean, that's always good advice generally, but I, I don't know what that does with time travel. Okay, well. Then then I suppose you don't have to worry about accidentally becoming one of your own ancestors. True. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yep. Your your family tree shouldn't be a wreath. Generally. Generally. I mean, unless we're talking about Siri. Oh, God. I always forget about that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We have fun here. (laughs) But with that, until next time, I'm John Mark. And I'm Alexa.